Well, we're going through a series there at the moment at City Reach Marion uh, through the period of Lent, which is the sort of 40 days in the lead up to Easter. And this year, uh, we are also coinciding with uh, the book of Matthew and finishing that. So we're uh, really diving deep into uh, what this news about Jesus really means. And one of the ways that we do that is we unpack, well, a particular portion of the Bible and we say, hey, what does that have to say to us today? Now this uh, particular um, uh, reading that we've heard uh, reflects some really interesting things and uh, one of the things that comes out of the text is this idea of substitution. You'll see it in three different ways. So you'll see, uh, you know, Judas is the uh, one who betrays Jesus and yet, and Jesus and is the innocent one and yet Jesus ends up going to the cross. So we see a substitution, innocent and guilty. Uh, Jesus has been the innocent one in the place of the guilty. Uh, then we see a second substitution happening. We see Jesus and Barabbas. Barabbas, the notorious criminal, going free. Jesus, the innocent man, uh, being sent to the cross. And then thirdly, we see this odd substitution uh, between uh, Jesus and Pilate. Pilate's this governor, you know, he's supposed to be ruling over, and he makes this judgment from his seat, which is really interesting, uh, over Jesus, and yet Jesus is supposed to be the king of the universe, and so they've swapped places. So when we, when we say and use the word substitution theologically, we often say Jesus took our place. You know, we, we think of the cross, we think of uh, instead of us paying for our sins through our death, Jesus pays for our sins through his death. And there's a lot of confusion about substitution. Well, what does it really mean? And theologians have used different um, ways to describe this. And one of the ways uh, they use to describe it is a bit of a metaphor. And the metaphor goes like this. Imagine uh, your house is burning down. And thankfully you got out. Uh, you're standing out the front with your family. You're watching your house burning down. And then uh, someone, you know, one of your friends, one of your neighbours walks past and, and says to you, Oh, how terrible it is that your house is burning down. Let me run in and, and put out the fire. And they run in and they jump on the fire and they die. And you'd be thinking, that person's just nuts, wouldn't you? Like, they've, they want to show you how much they love them, but they've just sort of jumped into the fire themselves. Really, it makes no sense, does it? But imagine if you were inside the burning house, everyone else got out, for, but for some reason, maybe the smoke was so heavy, there were flames coming at every direction, you sort of fell unconscious, that you're stuck in the house and the same neighbour walks past and they see the house on fire. They see that one person from the family is not accounted for and so they run into the house, get you out, but die in the process. Well, then you'd feel quite differently about that person, wouldn't you? You wouldn't go, that person's nuts because they just ran ah, into the fire. You'd go, hey, that person really loves me so much so that they gave their life for me because I would have died if I was there, but rather they died so that I might live. And that's the idea the Bible gives of substitution. It's him in our place where we ought to have paid the penalty, he pays the penalty for us. And really, substitution is at the centre of Christianity. And one of the things that I'm going to explain to you today is if you don't really get substitution, you don't really get Christianity. And if you don't see yourself 
that you should have been on the cross instead of Jesus, that you should have been paid the penalty for your, uh, for your sins rather than Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you don't get that, then maybe you're not really a Christian. Because this idea is really fundamental to the Christian faith, as we see reflected in these 23 verses. So let's have a look. I want to uh, work us around this subject of uh, substitution from the text. The first is, uh, we'll look at the innocent substitute, that is Jesus, because Jesus is the great substitute. Uh, secondly, we'll look at the righteous substitute. And thirdly, we will look at the glorious substitute. So let me begin, the innocent substitute. Now we, we really pick this up because Jesus and Judas are such a contrast, aren't they? I mean, we, we see that in, in the text. Matthew, the author, puts it this way, uh, calls Judas the betrayer in verse 3. But even Judas the betrayer gets that he's done the wrong thing, doesn't he? Like he, Judas was one of Jesus' 12 closest disciples. He had uh, you know, spent three years in ministry with Jesus, spending time seeing Jesus do these amazing miracles. Jesus had fed 5,000 people plus women and children, 5,000 men plus women and children at one time. He'd healed people. He'd even risen, like, like spoken to people out of the grave and they'd risen from the dead. So Judas has witnessed all this and yet, for whatever reason, he turns his heart against Jesus and he betrayed him. He delivered him into the hands of those that wanted to kill him. But here we see that Judas has regret. Judas you know, was actually paid off to do this, to betray Jesus. He was paid 30 pieces of silver to tell them that uh, Jesus will be in the Garden of Gethsemane at this particular time. And yet suddenly Judas is overcome with regret. He realises what he's done. Even he can see that Jesus is innocent. Look at it in the text, verse 4, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas doesn't want this on himself, does he? He realises he's done the wrong thing and he's filled with regret. So even the one who betrayed Jesus realises his innocence. Jesus is not going into this, you know, this court. That he's just come out of the religious court. He's about to go to the civil court. He's not going there because he's done something wrong. There is a plot against him. And they are all conspiring to kill Jesus. That's the climax, one of the climaxes of the New Testament. Jesus is on his way to die and people are out to get him. But he is innocent. Now, uh, on the one hand, we've got Judas who picks up, actually, Jesus is innocent. On the other hand, we see the chief priests and the elders, uh, the religious court, will they dismiss it outright? They have a sense of indifference towards Jesus. They don't really care about him and they respond when Judas comes to them and, and sort of wants to put his guilt aside. They say, well, what is it to us? What is it to us that you did this? They ignore their own guilt in the process because they were the ones conspiring to do it, but they sort of lay the blame on him. They won't even take the money back because they realise even the money is stained. It's blood money. So they avoid taking responsibility for the truth that they themselves are guilty it's odd, right? Isn't it odd that in the Bible we see religious people who really should be the ones who are worshipping Jesus have this almost callous indifference towards him, don't they? They don't care. They don't care about Jesus at all. It's a callous indifference. So on the one hand, we've got 
Judas realising that Jesus is innocent and he's guilty. On the other hand, we've got the chief priests and the elders avoiding their own guilt and also avoiding the innocence of Jesus too. But there's, fascinating, there's another fascinating thing we see about the innocence of Jesus, and we get this at the end of verse 10. It sort of uh, quotes a scripture uh, from the Old Testament and says, the Lord directed me. As in, God was allowing this to happen. So on the one hand, we've got Judas the betrayer. Yeah, he's part of the plot. On the other hand, we've got the... Um, chief priests and the elders and there's the crowds that they've stirred up to kill Jesus because they don't want Jesus taking power and yet over all of this God is permitting this to happen God is permitting his own son Jesus Christ to die to be falsely accused and sent to a cross this is an incredible thing, but a scary thing. Now, there's a couple of things that this, the innocence of Jesus tells us, and particularly with those and how they responded. The first is the religious indifference that we see from the chief priests and the elders. That's where the chief priests and the elders say, what is it to us that Jesus is innocent, but we've condemned him as guilty? What is it to us? An indifference towards him. We do not care. We just want it done and away with and out of sight, out of mind. Now this is actually quite an interesting and common perspective that we have today. Many people have an indifference towards God, particularly an indifference towards Jesus. We don't really care much about him. We might be aware of him, and most uh, Australians, the statistics tell us, are certainly aware of God, that there is a God in the world and perhaps he's done some things. We don't really buy into him that much. But when it comes down to the fundamentals of what he's done, particularly his innocence though going before these courts and particularly him being crucified, though he hadn't done some, anything wrong, most of us are indifferent towards it. And this strikes a chord particularly with religious people because most Australians actually identify as being religious. They say, you know, we are people who somewhat believe in God. And yet when it comes down to the fundamentals, we don't really care about them. Now, I actually grew up like this. So I grew up in a religious family. And for m most of my childhood, I was surrounded by Christian people who... Most of them believed in these things, but I myself certainly took them for granted. And when I decided that I wanted to walk my own path and rule my own life, well, my religious indifference took hold. I didn't really care, and I wasn't really interested in what God had done. And yet it was interesting because after a couple of years of living life my own way and doing things the way I wanted to do them, I was almost affronted by Christians again. They sort of invaded my life, as it were. I was sort of invited to uh, spend some time as a young teenager with some Christians at a youth group. And I went along and I was affronted by these people who did not have a religious indifference that I had, but had a personal conviction. Because I knew, like, I knew the basics, right? Jesus died, something to do with sin, he rose from the dead and he's out there somewhere. Possibly God, something like that. That was probably as far as my thinking went. And probably, for many, as far as our thinking goes as well. 
And yet, so these people believed that more than I did, and yet for them, it had totally changed who they were, and that got into me. And I became actually quite confronted by the fact that there were people who knew the same information that I did, and it had totally changed their lives. An internal transformation had taken place. They spoke about Jesus as if they knew him. And that was the thing that brought me under personal conviction too, because I thought, hang on a second. I thought I was religious, but I didn't know Jesus. It's a critical point in my life. So one thing that we can, or one way I guess we can reject Jesus, like we see here, is to have a religious indifference towards him. Another way we can reject Jesus, we can follow the path of Judas, which is really taking on regret rather than repentance. So you notice that Judas says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, as in he realises he's done the wrong thing because the consequences, are, he realises, are pretty massive. Hey, like the Son of God is going to the cross and it's on you. That's, that's a big deal, isn't it? Now, many of us can feel the consequences when we've sinned, when we've done the wrong thing, whether against God or against people. And they're all, it's always against God, really, isn't it? You know? But does it actually lead to repentance? The Bible talks about different types of grief, right? Godly grief that leads to repentance and worldly grief that leads to death. We actually see that here. We see a man, Judas, who regrets what he's done, but he still refuses Christ. We see a man in Judas who would rather bear his own sins than come to Jesus and have Jesus bear his sins for him. And so actually, Judas's last act is an act of pride. He's saying he would rather face God on his own merit than humble himself and beg forgiveness from Jesus. That's a scary thought, isn't it? That sometimes when we actually think we've repented, we're just regretting. We're still trying to do stuff in our own strength by ourselves and present ourselves to God. This is what I've done, God. Will you now accept me? We try and fix up our own life, right our own wrongs, and yet here we see that that does not work. It leads to death. Let me put it this way. Regret leads you away from Christ and to a lesser understanding of grace. Regret leads you away from Christ and to a lesser understanding of grace. Repentance, on the other hand, leads you to Christ and to a fuller understanding of grace. Very different. Okay, so we've looked at Jesus as an innocent substitute. Jesus, though he was innocent, treated as guilty. But now we turn, secondly, to look at Jesus as a righteous substitute. And this is where we compare Jesus and Barabbas. Now, there's a couple of realizations, actually, that Jesus, uh, from the civil court uh, that he comes to, that Jesus is actually righteous. He hasn't done the wrong thing. And it comes from the civil leaders. Firstly, we see this uh, from Pilate. Uh, we see this in verse 18. He realizes that it was out of envy. It was out of envy. Uh, that the chief priest, that the religious authorities, the chief priests and the elders, had decided uh, to 
put Jesus to death. You know, they stirred up the crowds and so they got some support behind them. It's very political the way they're handling this, isn't it? They're sort of taking every step. They're working through the religious court and out of the civil court, stirring up the crowds so that Pilate has no, no choice almost but to crucify Jesus. And yet even this unrighteous judge, Pilate, recognises that Jesus is a righteous man. And the crazy thing about this is they're actually substituting a guilty man who's clearly guilty, Barabbas. It says he was a notorious prisoner. A notorious prisoner. They're willing to set him free, though all of his charges have been proved guilty, and Jesus haven't been proved guilty. They're willing to set a guilty man free and to put an innocent man to death. And even the unrighteous judge picks it up. But then, of course, his wife turns up. Even during the proceedings. This, like, this would be not on in an ordinary court of law, right? You don't get the wife of the judge turning up and go, hey, like, you need to get, out, get yourself out of this. I had a dream. That's not, that doesn't happen. So this is, uh, Pilate's wife must have been absolutely terrified in the dream that she had it says she suffered much because of it, verse 19. Suffered much. She was dreaming during the day, who knows, having a nap or something. But she was absolutely terrified that blood would be on their hands. And so she wants to get out of this situation as quickly as possible. Now, this is, uh, I just want to comment on this quickly. Dreams are important to listen to sometimes. You know, we don't get all hocus-pocus about dreams or anything like that. But, hey, dreams are in the Bible, so we should probably talk about them. And actually, she was right, too. Because she said he was a righteous man, and she was spot on. Sometimes, God is revealing stuff to us in dreams that we need to listen to. And this happens to people who don't believe in him yet. Now, this um, we see actually happening quite often in the sort of Muslim-majority world. A lot of people have uh, dreams about Issa or Jesus. Can't really be described. Then they meet a Christian and the Christian explains the gospel and they're like, oh, I had a dream about him. That makes sense. And then they come to faith. Quite common. Uh, but, but also, you know, we, don't, we, we tend to sub-spiritualize things in Australia and try to avoid stuff like that. But it does happen. We do have dreams from time to time. And sometimes they're terrifying. But if you're having dreams about God, I think you better stand up and listen to them and get someone to help you interpret what's going on, someone who knows the Bible. Because it may well be that God is calling out something in your life that you need to acknowledge Jesus as righteous and yourself as unrighteous and come before him. It reminds me a little bit, uh, and you know, we, if you're a Star Wars person, you remember in the um, A New Hope uh, that they've, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and, and um, a few others that are flying uh, in the Millennium Falcon and then Obi-Wan Kenobi says, there's a disturbance in the force. You know, like he, he realises something, something bad has happened. You know, he's, he's, he, like he's aware of it. Now, yeah, that, that's a bit of a joke, but on the other hand, people recognise when something wrong is happening and Pilate picked it up, Pilate's wife picked it up, and yet the religious people didn't. 
They were so infused with pride that they couldn't work out that something wrong is happening here. So it might be quite obvious to those who would look at it. So on the one hand, we uh, see people you know, pick up that Jesus is a righteous man. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a, there is a substitution going on here. As I said earlier, Barabbas is put forward to be freed, though he's clearly guilty, and Jesus is put forward to be condemned, though he's clearly innocent. Barabbas was a civil criminal. He was a lawbreaker. He'd been condemned for his crimes. This is really interesting because to really get Christianity, you kind of got to get the bad news as well as the good news, don't you? We talk, we talk about uh, the gospel meaning good news, and yet one of my um, lecturers at Bible college uh, corrected me once and said, well, actually, it's just news, like important news, uh, but it's not just good news because you can only come to a saviour if you realise you really need a saviour. It really makes sense on, on that hand, doesn't it? Now, when we see someone like Barabbas, we go, hey, oh, yeah, like a notorious prisoner. Of course he's guilty. You know, of course he's done bad things. And so it's a bit of a shock that they would put forward him to be freed. But if we sort of maybe put the mirror in front of us uh, for a minute and go, well, look at our own lives. Are we guilty? You know, have we been unrighteous in the way that we've lived? And what do we use to measure ourselves? What standard would we cast over our own lives? If you've ever seen um, one of those CSI shows, you'll know that they go into sort of the scene of the crime with a black light. Have you ever seen that and all this stuff shows up? Or you might have seen it on one of those like um, uh, YouTube videos where they uh, show you what's really you know, on the floor of your hotel room. If you're going to stay in a hotel, don't watch the video first, okay? Because you'll never stay in another hotel again. But it just shows up all this sort of stuff. But you've got to shine a particular light to you know, reveal the muck that's everywhere. And uh, it's, a, it's a bit like that when it comes to us and God. Right? If, if you are going to you know, judge yourself by your own standards, which doesn't really make sense, but if you're going to if you're going to judge yourself by your own standards, then well, you can choose whether you're righteous or unrighteous, can't you? Easily. You can decide whether you're a good person or a bad person because you, you're the judge. If, uh, the, you know, if the civil state is the judge, well, then you're judged whether you've broken the law or not broken the law. And, but for many of us, it's actually whether we've been caught or not. Because we've all broken the law at various times. I don't know if you've ever spared before, more than a kilometre over the speed limit if you're a driver here. Yeah, don't, don't put your hand up. But, um, <laughs> but, but seriously. You know, but there is, if there is a higher power and he is good and right and just and the Bible tells us he's the just judge of all the earth, well then, gee, when he looks over your life, his holiness is much more powerful than a black light. And he knows in his perfect justice, unlike those courts that we see here, just what you've done. He knows the sins of heart, head and hands, the things that you've motivated you wrongly, even the good things that you do, but you do because you want to make yourself better than others, the things you've thought about doing that you haven't done, God knows about those, and certainly the things that you've done, God knows about those too. And God is different, utterly different to a human court because a human court can only pin you if 
They catch you out. Whereas God, the Bible tells us, and Jesus actually reveals to us, knows the heart of man. He knows exactly what we're like. He knew that Judas was, would betray him the moment he set eyes on him. What makes us think he doesn't know what we've been up to and what we've been thinking about? So really, we're not all that different from Barabbas, spiritually speaking. We may not all be criminals. I mean, we probably are a little bit. But when it comes to God, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible is abundantly clear about that. Uh, in the, um, the novel that became a very prominent musical movies, Les Miserables, uh, you might have, or Les Miserables, for those that are uncultured. <laughs> Just kidding, I've, I've said that before. Uh, if, if you've watched it, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And um, let me get this right. Uh, but there's this really interesting interaction between uh, Jean Valjean and this bishop. Now, uh, Jean Valjean is sort of the, the lead character. He goes into prison, uh, he's sort of stolen a loaf of bread, got five years for that, pretty harsh justice in those days. And then he kept trying to escape from prison, he ended up being in prison for about 19 years. And, you know, he, he comes out a hardened, bitter and angry man. Uh, you know, he's, he comes out someone who, you know, the world has hurt him and so he's going to get back at the world. And, in fact, when he gets out of prison, no inn will take him for, to stay for the night uh, because of his record against him. He ends up sleeping on the porch of some bishop. Anyway, the bishop takes him in. The, the, you know, this religious man sees, um, uh, sees Jean Valjean, this bishop, and uh, you know, takes pity on him, welcomes him in, and when Jean Valjean sort of questions that, why would you take someone like me into your house, this is what the bishop says. He says, this is not my house, it is the house of Jesus Christ. The door does not demand of him who enters whether he has a name, but whether he has a grief. You suffer, you are hungry and thirsty, you are welcome. And do not thank me, do not say that I receive you in my house. No one, no one is at home here except the man that needs a refuge. I say to you who are passing by that you are much more at home here than I am myself. Everything here is yours. What need have I to know your name besides before you told me your, you had one which I knew? So there's this sense that the bishop is essentially saying to you know, this convict... Uh, who's a bitter and angry man, you're welcome. What's mine is yours. Free of charge because he is under the grace of God. So the bishop gets something about God. Now, Jean Valjean is so twisted and bitter at that point and the sins really have gotten into his heart. I mean, he, he's been abused and hurt by a lot of people and so he doesn't trust anyone. And so the first night that he's there, he goes and grabs all the silverware and takes it and does a runner because he thinks, man, this guy's loaded can get out of here and make some quick money. Of course, the authorities catch up with him and uh, they bring uh, Jean Valjean before the bishop. So you've got the authorities behind him. Jean Valjean sort of cuffed at the back uh, and he comes to the bishop. And the bishop works out what's going on pretty quickly. He knew that his silverware had been taken and who had taken it. And he, and he runs up, the bishop runs up to Jean Valjean and says, oh, don't forget the, uh, the candlesticks. 
You know, these candlesticks are made of pure silver. You, you forgot to take them. I said, what's mine is yours. And it was, it was incredible because, on the one hand, Jean Valjean was convinced that he was going to get you know, taken away and imprisoned again for this. He was convinced. And he deserved it, right? Justice. Justice demanded that Jean Valjean would again pay for his crimes. And yet what does the bishop do? He says, no, you forgot something. You take the lot. And there's this moment of sort of shock and disbelief on uh, Jean Valjean's face. He says, like, why did you do this? Why would you? Why would you do this for someone like me? And the bishop replies, "Forget not, never forget that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man, Jean Valjean, my brother. You no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God." Essentially, the bishop is saying to Jean Valjean, with this act of grace, I seek that your life would be changed and transformed. You who were a criminal, you who deserved justice, by this act of grace, by this act of mercy, can be redeemed. Now, it actually, in, in, in the books, not the, uh, the plays or the, the movies, but in the books, it talks about this... Um, this real wrestle that Jean Valjean had because he still hadn't come to grips with this grace. It almost terrified him because he realised that if God was willing to be so freely giving to him and he realised this was a paradigm for what Jesus had done for him, that Jesus had become a criminal and died for his sake and that Jean Valjean could be set free, he realised that what he would owe Christ in return, his whole life. The bishop picked it up, of course, straight away. But he had this terrible wrestle within him. You see, Jean Valjean could only be saved from the consequences of his sinful behaviour by someone spending of themselves to save him. In fact, the bishop gave of his own wealth and righteousness to save Jean Valjean from prison again to redeem his soul, as he puts it. There was a substitution, and there was an exchange. There was an exchange of the righteousness of the bishop for the unrighteousness of Jean Valjean. So we've looked and we've seen that there is an innocent substitute when it comes to Jesus, firstly. There's also a righteous substitute, a righteous for the unrighteous. But thirdly, we see that there is a glorious substitute in the text. This is where we compare Jesus and Pilate. Now, uh, there's this fascinating um, situation that happens in verses 11 to 14. Jesus is uh, questioned by Pilate, who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, well, you have said so, as in, yes, I am. But when they come to further accuse him and sort of give damning evidence... Jesus won't even say anything. It says he gave him no answer, verse 14, not even to a single charge. So much so that the governor was greatly amazed. I mean, surely an innocent man, surely a righteous man would defend himself. 
why does Jesus see, see no need for that? I mean, clearly Pilate picks up that this is incredible. And Pilate works out that Jesus is innocent too. Why would Jesus not speak in his own behalf? Well, the answer is that Pilate would not have the final word of judgment over Jesus. The answer is that the chief priests and the elders would not have the final word of judgment over Jesus. The answer is that God would have the final word of judgment over Jesus and that Jesus himself would have the final word once the judgment is done. What is that final word? There's a really interesting word that Jesus said. It's his last word that he says on the cross. We translate it with three words. In Greek, it's tetelestai. In English, it is, it is finished. It's an accounting term. Uh, generally means that the, the, the debts are paid. So when you would, um, in ancient culture, you know, you'd uh, have the ledger there, and if you paid all your debts, you'd stamp it tetelestai, debts paid. It is finished. Settled. When Jesus yelled out his final word on the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished, he was saying the payment for sin is done. Jesus had the final word, not Pilate. God had judged Jesus on the basis of our sin because Jesus was innocent, Jesus was righteous. Whose sin put Jesus on the cross? Ours did. That's what the Bible tells us. Because he wasn't there for his own. There was a plot against him. Though he could have sent legions of angel armies to deliver him, he didn't. He restrained his wrath. Why? That he would bear its consequences himself. The great story of the Bible is that God himself, Jesus Christ, would substitute himself in your place. And Jesus would have the final word that it is finished. And so that means that on the cross, full payment has been made for your sins. Now this has a very important implication for you and I. A very important implication for you and I. Because if you are a Christian person, that is, you believe that Jesus is your substitute. You've taken hold of life by believing in his name, confessed your sins, believed in him. Then you have no right to hold your sins against yourself anymore. Why is that? Because Jesus alone has the final word on your life. Not you. You don't have that right. He paid for your sins. He has the final word. It is finished. It's really interesting in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. It talks about the qualities of uh, a Christian and someone increasing in maturity and adding one thing to another to become you know, a very a good person, someone who is well looked upon by others and someone who serves well and is filled with the fruit of God. And yet it says if you're not like this, you have forgotten that you have been cleansed from former sins. Where is the power of Christianity, it is in the finished work of Jesus who has the final word, our great and glorious substitute, the one who stands in your place and says, it is finished, the one who was silent before Pilate when they accused him, he knew that he would have the final word, it is finished. 
Another aspect of Jesus being the glorious substitute is that he will sit on the final judgment seat and not Pilate. It is very ironic in verse 19 that it says Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat with the Son of God in front of him. Isn't it utterly ironic? The Bible tells us that Jesus himself will sit on the judgment seat of all the world. Every human being that's lived over every generation throughout all of history, Jesus will judge the living and the dead. The Bible's very clear about that, and yet here we see Jesus before just the governor who's sitting in his judgment seat, allowing Jesus to be crucified. We see, we see someone who recognises Jesus' innocence and his righteousness, being Pilate. Pilate knows that Jesus is the right man, and yet he's weak. He's corrupt, he's unjust, he permits them still to crucify Jesus. He washes his hands of it, though he is responsible. He gives in to public sentiment, he gives in to the cries of the crowds. And yet, with Jesus, we do not see that. We see someone who will not give in to the cries of the crowds. Someone who will stand up to the cry of the crowds, even unto death. There is a great irony here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 tells us this. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The only way that a righteous and good God can accept a sinner like you and me is if someone pays the full cost and penalty themselves. And ordinarily, you and I would pay the cost for our sins, would we not? Justice demands it. You know, you put that black light over your life, everything comes to light. Isn't that true? If we just think about our own lives for a minute, if you and I just consider ourselves for just a minute, that is very true. And yet this great and just and glorious King Jesus was willing to put himself, to substitute himself in our place. So that when he sits on his great judgment seat after his resurrection, Jesus can say to us, you are right, you are in me, you are part of my body, you are in my bride. And the only reason that Jesus can say that is because he has paid the penalty, it is finished, it is complete. One of the great temptations for us is self-pity. That is, like Judas did, he sat in the seat of his own sins. He wasn't willing to hand his sins over to Jesus and ask for forgiveness from the only one who could grant it, both the one who would bear the penalty and the one who would sit on the judgment seat. No, he wanted to sit under his own sins in his own merit and that took him to death. And that is a great danger. Self-pity is a great danger. When you, see your, when you feel yourself when you recognize yourself going to a place of self-pity, it is not a good place. It takes you away from God and away from the work that Jesus has done. The centrality of the Christian faith is the substitution rework of Jesus. Him in yours and my place. And when we get that, self-pity has no place because we still confess our sins to Jesus when we commit them, when we become aware of them. 
but we're aware that he has granted us that forgiveness and we do not hold on to them any longer. Otherwise, it will prevent you from maturing, prevent you from going on. It will load you up with guilt and shame that is not yours to bear because Jesus has borne it. Often we um, take on the verdicts of different people in our lives, don't we? They listen to the crowds, what they might say about us. It's very dangerous listening to the crowds. They can be convinced of all sorts of things, can't they? How do you think about yourself? Whose verdict do you listen to when it comes to who you are as a person? What your parents said about you? What your friends say about you? What you think about yourself? The Bible says there's one verdict that matters. And it's the verdict of the glorious substitute. The one who will sit on the judgment seat but the one who was willing to sit in the seat of the unrighteous, the seat of the guilty, the seat of the cross. Now, if you put yourself in his hands, trust in him, give yourself over to Jesus and say, you are my Lord and Savior because of what you've done, what what I've seen here in the text, what I've heard. It's gripped my heart. When you believe in Jesus, then that is the verdict which is on your life forevermore. Because when God will look at you, he will see an innocent man because what Jesus has done in your place, because Jesus becomes your substitute. He sees the innocence of Christ. When God looks at you, he will see the righteousness of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is your substitute. He stands in your place. When God looks at you, he will see the glorious work of his son, crucified, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, coming to judge the living and the dead. And so there is one verdict which you should place on your life. One thing that someone says about you, and it is what Christ would say, that you are one of his because he is yours. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for this uh, important news, this good news about who Jesus is and what he's done, our great substitute. Let this uh, infect our lives in such a way that we cannot let it go, in such a way that we have to pass it to others, in such a way, Lord, that it totally transforms us from the inside out. Praise you, our glorious substitute, Lord Jesus, crucified risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, returning to judge the living and the dead. We honour you and we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name.